Our scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. I'll be reading from the New International Version. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in from every side. They will dash you to the ground and you and your children within their walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you do not recognize the time of God's coming to you. May the added his blessing to the wording in this way. The text just read us is a pivotal moment, a pivotal moment in Christ's life, a pivotal moment in salvation history, and a pivotal moment in the life of a city, Jerusalem. The Arabs refer to it as the city of God. It's called the holy city. It's called many, many things. And its history is ancient and rich. Abraham, you recall, was from Ur. Ur is located in what is now Iraq, an ancient city, Sumerian city. It was not a city in which monotheism was practiced, but a city of many gods. Abraham discerned that there was but one maker of heaven and earth. And Abraham listened. As a spiritual seeker, Abraham was able to apprehend that there was but one God. And that as a seeker, he would find a place. So he left Ur, took his family, wandered through that wilderness moving westward until he came to a land inhabited by a people known as Canaanites. The Canaanites were not uh, named for anything except the region, Canaan. And they were called Ites because I suppose many of the tribes of them end in Ite, the Jebusites, the Malachites, the Amorites. You've heard these names mentioned at various times in the Old Testament. Abraham arrives and enters into a new understanding. He will be the heir of a promise and he will fulfill his part of covenant and God will fulfill God's part of covenant, making of Abraham a nation. Abraham circumcises himself, his whole household, and the covenant is entered into. Only something very bizarre is going to happen. This God who delights not in human sacrifice asks of Abraham that he give up his son, Isaac. Isaac is taken with Abraham on a little journey and they end up in a place called Mount Moriah. Now, we don't know for 100% sure where this is. 
There's no external archaeological reference that would date back to that time that would tell us for certain where this is. But it was a rocky outcropping atop a hill and was very likely already a sanctified place, at least to the Canaanites. A place set apart, a holy place of worship, and Abraham journeyed there to offer Isaac his son. You know the story. An angel stops the dagger from entering Isaac's heart. uh, Offering is found, ram is found in the, the bushes nearby and substitutes well as an offering for Isaac. God is pleased because he can be sure that Abraham is completely dedicated, fully committed, not only to uh, monotheism, but to God himself. That truly God will be the God of the people of Abraham and Abraham will be and his descendants, his people. Jewish tradition places Mount Moriah in what is known as Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have been at the time of Abraham nothing. A fortified wall or two perhaps, several houses. It wasn't in a significant place strategically. It wasn't in a significant place in terms of trade. It wasn't wealthy. A few Bedouins uh, in the area probably, with their tents and their goats. Jerusalem wasn't significant yet. Except this was a place where Abraham journeyed. This was a place where Isaac would be offered. We don't really know anything from this time until Moses then about Jerusalem. And really Jerusalem is not part of the Moses story, is it? For Moses only goes up onto Mount Nebo in Jordan and looks across the Jordan Valley to the rise of the hills where Jerusalem would be at 2,500 feet elevation. He's not permitted to enter the holy land. He's not permitted to enter the promised land. Joshua and Caleb would lead the people eventually there. Jerusalem really begins to find its significance as Israel has taken over the land and the tribes are living in the general areas Benjamin to the north of Judah and Judah and Benjamin to the west. Jerusalem just being slightly north. But see, Jerusalem has never been taken in the conquest of Canaan. The time of David, it remains a Jebusite city. And David is brilliant because as he replaces Saul as king... His general Joab uses the Gihon Spring there, which was probably the reason the area was inhabited in the first place, copious amounts of very cold, very good water. And the channel in which the spring goes has a, I don't know what to call it, a tunnel, a vertical tunnel that goes into the ancient city. And it is through this that Joab gains access. And David is able to take the city. 
David would fortify its walls, build its, his palaces there, his royal buildings there, and prepare to build a temple there. But as you remember the story, David is a man of war, a man of conquest, a man of blood. And he will not be permitted to build this, the temple, but his son Solomon will. And it is on this rocky outcropping that the Temple Mount will be constructed. This giant space in a relatively small place, leveled with enormous rocks and fortifications, some of which still stand to this day. It's quite a sight when you realize that just beneath all of this lies the Kidron Valley. And we know that name from stories about David and others as well. Fast forward to the time of the son of David. Very political title, by the way. Very important because it harkens back to a time when Israel is a unified state. Goes back to the time when the 12 tribes are united under the kingship of David and Solomon. Prosperity is at an all-time high. David, having made Jerusalem the capital city, has done something brilliant, as I said, because not only does he take it, but he, he, he makes it the religious center as well as the political center of the country. The Ark of the Covenant is installed there. And it's a neutral space because having been a Jebusite city, it doesn't belong to the tribe of Asher. It doesn't belong to the tribe of Dan. It doesn't belong to the tribe of Benjamin. It belongs to all of Israel. If you remember, Israel will fall on tough times post-Solomon. Unwise kings, unfaithful to God and to covenant. Battles that will ultimately separate Judah in the south and Israel in the north and east. Ten tribes and two. Conquests that will eventually take the north and eventually take the south. You know the story of Nebuchadnezzar and the capture of Judah and Jerusalem. Devastation to the city. Time and time again, war and devastation have come over 100 major conflicts in the area. And Jesus will take the title Son of David. We know it is Palm Sunday. He's journeyed to Jerusalem against the counsel of his disciples because his time has come, as he has put it. He cannot afford for the message of the kingdom of God that is and is to come he cannot afford for this message to be lost. It's time to bring it to the religious center of the nation and in some ways of the world. It's time to really confront the spiritual leaders of the day and present the ideas to declare himself the one that fulfills prophecy once again. He chooses carefully. Note that Jesus with his disciples and a group of supporters come from the Mount of Olives. This is 
right across the valley from the city in the Temple Mount. Gethsemane is there. Cemeteries are there. And he comes from the Mount of Olives, having looked at Jerusalem and wept. While it is only 2930 AD, Jesus sees into the future. He sees flash forward to 67 AD and the campaign against Jerusalem. The fall and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He notes that the temple is destroyed. That the people are executed and taken into slavery. And that the city is laid to ruin. And he weeps for this city of God. Because they haven't known the peace that has come to it in his person. He rides not a stallion. He comes not as a warlord or a king. He comes as one humble, riding on a donkey, being led. His message is not one of takeover. It's subversive. It's insidious. And I don't mean those in the worst sense of the words. I mean those to say that there's something contagious about the idea of the kingdom here and now and the kingdom coming. We know that's true because it's 2,000 years later and we sit in this place together today. Jesus knew the prophecies. He knew the prophets extremely well and was anxious to fulfill everything that was written of the Messiah. And he comes from the Mount of Olives down and enters into Jerusalem. He's taken notice of and not kindly. For this title, Son of David, implies that he is indeed a Jewish king and that there is an agenda there. The next day, Jesus appears in the temple, and it's not a neutral appearance. With cord in hand, he drives out the money changers. He overturns their tables. He sets the animals free. These animals for sacrifice that poor pilgrims are being so overcharged for. Animals that are being representative as fit for sacrifice, but may have had impurities one kind or defects, one kind or another. Jesus declares that the temple is not a marketplace. It's not a place for people to be taken advantage of. It's not a place for the rich to get richer. The temple doesn't belong to those who hawk their wares there. The temple is a place of prayer for all God's people. There is a universality to this that I hope we grasp. Jesus will minister. He will speak. He will raise attention this week in Jerusalem. 
He will prepare for a Passover feast, renting a room as countless other pilgrims would have done. Renting a room so that his disciples and their families and friends and he might celebrate Passover. That remembrance going back to Moses, that event that pointed to a time when on the instruction of God passed through Moses, the people would offer a Passover lamb as a sacrifice. They wouldn't sit down to eat. They wouldn't take time to leaven and bake bread. They would make unleavened bread. They would eat bitter herbs to remind them of the difficulties of slavery. They would cook this lamb and eat it standing with their belts and tunics on, their staffs at hand. It was a time of preparation. And they would take the blood of that lamb and instead of it being putting, put on the four horns of the altar or used in an atoning kind of way, the lamb's blood was simply put on the lintel and the doorposts. That the angel of death coming to remind Pharaoh once again of who God was and what his powers were He who determined who would live and who would die. That the angel of death as it passed over Egypt would pass over these homes with the blood of the lamb. Jesus gathers his disciples in this place and they've forgotten the Passover goyim. There is no servant available. I've been a goyim many times, lived in an orthodox neighborhood, and I got to be a Sabbath goyim on a number of occasions. Are you Jewish? Uh, No, I don't think so. I'm circumcised. Too much information. (laughs) Are you sure you're not Jewish? Yeah, I'm quite sure I'm not Jewish. All right, well, I, I... I'm wondering, you see, we've left, well, it's really hot and we we need the air conditioner turned on. No problem. I will break the Sabbath for you. I will build a fire by flipping a switch and turning your air conditioner on. I will be of service, a Sabbath goyim. No goyim was there to wash their feet. Jesus takes off his outer clothes and wraps himself in a towel and begins to do the the work that a goyim would do. It's again an act of humility. This is a very different kind of king. What he's bringing is not a gospel of war, it's a gospel of peace. Peace. It's not a gospel of taking over. It's a gospel of substitution. And he washes the disciples' feet. And we know the stories surrounding that. Peter's arrogance and misunderstanding. 
The conversation at the table about betrayal. You see, Jesus is going to take Passover and use it as an opportunity to teach them not of the horrors that have happened in times past, but of the difficulties facing them in the immediate future that they have no real awareness of. Sorry, I keep playing with my mic. I don't have a clip to hold the thing in place here. Jesus is going to go through the season as the Passover lamb. They end their meal. Judas has already agreed to betray Jesus, 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus invites his disciples to go with him back across the valley, up just a little distance into Gethsemane. Now, unless you get the idea that this is just miles Okay, it is about the equivalent of walking to Starbucks from the Temple Mount. Maybe, maybe um, a block and a half further. I don't know. It's not a great distance we're talking about. Jesus leaves the area, goes through the gates, out into the kitchen, up into the, the Mount of Olives again, where these beautiful groves of olive trees were. See, there's life in the desert sometimes. And what's so remarkable about places like Jerusalem is that they've found a way to cultivate it. These olive trees are still there, much larger than two or three or four of these pulpits put together in their trunk diameter. Some of these trees are 2,200 years old. And Gethsemane is this place where Jesus goes Agony besets him. You see, he doesn't have to do this. Yeah, he's raised some attention. He knows what's coming. He has really ticked off the religious leaders of his own faith, Judaism, but he's also taken the title Son of David, which implies that he's a Jewish king, which implies that he is challenging Caesar. No good can come of this. All he needs to do is get back out of the city and disappear into the Judean desert and his life is secure. Nobody's going to hunt him down. Nobody's going to bother him. And in Gethsemane he prays, let this cup pass. I can't take it. Not my will, but yours be done. The temple guards show up. Judas kisses Jesus. Peter tries to cut off Malchus' head and only gets his ear. Jesus heals Malchus. And he's taken to the home of Caiaphas, north of the temple mount, toward the east side of the city and held overnight. No courts are open after all. It is Passover and it is night. And in the morning he is tried by the Sanhedrin, 70 some odd men, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, priests, empowered to not only deal with religious matters, but political, criminal matters. 
and they find him guilty of blasphemy. He's guilty of something punishable by death. But they're not empowered to execute him. So to Pilate he will go. Well, without recounting the various trips back and forth, Pilate, as you know, against the good advice of his wife, decides to wash his hands of the matter and give the Jews what they want, orders the execution of Jesus. So on Friday, following Passover, he is beaten. His beard is torn out. Men, next time you have a few facial hairs available, give a little tug on those whiskers around your lips. It's agony. You know, even when a baby reaches up and grabs you there, you just don't quite know what to do, do you? Jesus' beard plucked out. He is spit upon. A temporary crown of thorns is woven and forced upon his head, cutting into such tender flesh. He is mocked and ridiculed and crowned a king in suffering. He is horribly beaten and made to carry the implement of his own death. From the Roman praetorium and the guard there, north of the temple mount, north of the political structures there, through the north gate, out to where he would be executed. It's nailed. And six hours later declares it's finished. And all of this, but six days earlier, he is mourning for Jerusalem, the city of God. It's an amazing place. An amazing story. And it doesn't end there. Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. Cyrus the Great gives the command to allow the Jews to rebuild there, and they do. But by the time we get to... No, that's previous. I'm sorry. That's ancient. They they are given the, the permission to come back, and they do begin to rebuild. But by 132 AD, Jews are forbidden to be in Jerusalem. That's when... Christian monuments and things began to take place and Arabs began to occupy the place in ways that they hadn't previously. It's why Jerusalem stands as the foothold now of three great religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And today it's an amazing and diverse place. And it holds our imagination still Because Jesus, when he was resurrected on the third day, a week after he had come in on Palm Sunday, a week after he was declared son of David, rises from his tomb and spends 40 days in and around Jerusalem, making appearances to his disciples and others. And he ascends from the same place from which he came, bringing a new religious order, he leaves from the Mount of Olives. And there his disciples see him ascend back into heaven. 
And we look forward to, particularly as Adventists, the second coming of Jesus. And we look forward to a world made new. But in all of that eschatology, in all of that theology, is a very clear idea. There will be a new, what? Jerusalem. A new city of God. And the new Jerusalem will descend and land where? On the Mount of Olives. Christian groups universally look forward to that day in various degrees of literalism and interpretation. But as Adventists, we have an eschatological expectation that Jesus who went will come again. The Jesus who ascends will return with the city of God and we will be its new inhabitants. I want to invite you to reflect on these things as we wash one another's feet and as we assemble in this place for that Passover meal, for our communion table. You're dismissed. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God. Paul instructs us with regard to the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. That Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Tradition is the disciples sang a hymn in that upper room and left. And so we will sing one final hymn together as we get ready for our departure. And now may this God, who was and is and is forevermore, go with us, this Christ who cleanses us from our sins and brings to us the promise of a new Jerusalem. And this people who have declared for themselves the desire this day to remember, to drink of the cup and eat of the bread until he come. May the Lord bless us all. Amen.